I'm Natalie Gregoire-Skeet, and I am HSBC's Head of Sustainability in Europe. Welcome to the latest episode of the CFA UK In Conversation podcast. This is the show for investment professionals focusing on a whole manner of topics and interesting insights that are affecting the profession today. In this episode, I am talking to Pamela Hutchinson, OBE, who is the Global Head of Diversity at Bloomberg. Pamela and I will have a discussion about her career so far and the DEI initiatives around the world that are impacting real change. So Pamela, you are a true diversity professional. Please could we start with you telling our listeners about your journey to your current role as Bloomberg Global Head of Diversity and Inclusion? Yes, thank you so much. It's such a pleasure being here today. So look, I never thought that I would be a head of DNI um, for a big institution like Bloomberg. In fact, uh, when I graduated, I graduated with a law degree, and that's where I thought that my career would be heading. Um, so it's as much a surprise to me that I'm doing this work, and for as long as I have, and with an OBE to boot, then it, you know, it really is quite something. But you know, I, I left university. I thought that I would pursue a career in law. In fact, one of my first jobs after graduating was to work on um, at Eurotunnel. And I was part of a, um, a group of lawyers who were pulling together um, documentation that was uh, basically um, evidence against the consortium who were building the tunnel at the time that were called uh, Transmarsh Link. Transmarsh Link was suing Eurotunnel and I was involved in pulling all this evidence together um, with a, a number of other um, lawyers. And that was my first job. I was working out of a porter cabin at the top of the cl a cliff edge in Folkestone watching the tunnel being built. It was quite something I can tell you about there, not least because... I was the only woman amongst thousands of men working on the tunnel and I was the only person of colour. And there were many times I can tell you back there that I sat in the toilets. By the way, there were no women's toilets then because there was only men <laughs> on the site uh, crying and thinking, how the hell did I get myself? into a scenario like this but it was you know what it turned out being an amazing experience um it wasn't as bad as I thought it was when I started but post doing that particular um project um I then went to work for Bechtel uh, which is an engineering company and in fact Bechtel were the project managers of Eurotunnel at the time and they quite liked working with me so they offered me a job in Hammersmith in London um and I was working within HR I I was uh, both looking, um, uh, translating uh, legislation that had come from Europe at the time. It was the working, you may not recall this, of course, because you're probably far younger than I am, but the working time regulations were coming through at the time and no one really understood them or how to translate them. And I was working within HR trying to translate the working time regulations um, for um, our managers. At the same time, there was a lot of change happening with um, both the Sex Discrimination and the Race Relations Act. So there was a lot of work for me to do at the time. Um, one day I happened to be going in to see the head of, of HR and um, outside his desk was uh, uh, like a little round table and it had lots of books and magazines on it. And I picked something up and it was called, it, it was titled Managing Diversity and Inclusion in the UK. 
And I started reading it. And by the time I went in to see him, I was super excited by what I had read. And I said to him, hey, have you heard about this diversity? And he said, um, yeah, I, I kind of know one person, I think, who's doing it at HSBC. Of course, back then it was called Hong Kong Shanghai Bank. But anyway, um, and so he said, um, why don't you see, you know, find out a little bit about it? And I was like, no, this is not really my job. Um, kind of first lesson for me actually in my career which is if somebody offers you something take it even if it's something you don't want to do because you never know where it's going to lead you and I procrastinated and I well I don't know and it's not my job and I'm so busy anyway he convinced me to go and do it I spent I think something like four months on the road basically talking to people who actually had DNI practitioners in place and back then there was only four companies in the whole country bizarrely boots marks and spencers little words and hsbc and so i spent time with all of the heads of dni there i ended up writing a massive report report came back to backtel and i was asked to um present at the top 400 conference about dni again you know i felt i've never felt more of an imposter than i did that day because I really knew nothing about diversity and inclusion, except for the fact that I happened to be a black woman with my own life experiences, but that was it. Um, presented at this stage in Dallas on DNI, and was then asked to lead a DNI initiative at the firm. We were the first, as far as I am aware, at least, first engineering company in the country to have a DNI practitioner, which was pretty something for 28 years ago. And the rest is history, really, from having sort of juggling two jobs, both the employment law advisor and DNI. Um, and I've always been very vocal. I ended up being headhunted for a role to do DNI, which was at Goldman's. And I went to Goldman's and from Goldman's, I went to Barclays, from Barclays to Deutsche Bank, Deutsche Bank to Northern Trust. And finally, here I am at Bloomberg. Wow. What an incredible story from going from a role where you're the only woman and the only person of colour so much that they did not even have women toilets to um, pioneer, being one of the pioneers in um, DEI for an engineering company. And it's also great to hear that HSBC was one of the few companies um, when you first looked at it that had a DEI practice. Um, so that is also great to know. And so was it that experience really, that first experience of understanding and having to work as being an only woman, an only person of colour, that really inspired you to work in D DEI or was it really that kind of support and nudging that you got from that mentor sponsor that you know, suggested that you looked looked at this what what would you say attracted you to that to that career what, what was the largest influence to be honest I think my largest influence were my parents um, who are no longer here but you know, as I grew up um, and as a black woman and many black people or people of colour, I'm sure will have had their parents say to them, you know, you have to work twice as hard as your white peers in order to get on. Interestingly enough, my parents had a slight spin on that. It was like you have to work twice as hard as everybody in order to get on. And um, and so I always felt like I had to just work really hard. Um, and they always said, you know, the chances are, you know, you are likely to be 
the only one in many scenarios and so you have to get used to being the only one because if you you know if you if you don't get used to that then you're never going to really push yourself forward um you know this notion of um you know you have to see you have to see it to believe it you know you have to see a black role model you have to see a, a female role model in order to believe that you can be that person i always grew up being told um Sometimes you have to be it in order for others to see it. And that has always been a kind of mantra of mine. And so every environment, in fact, most environments that I have been in in my career, I have been the only one. And in the back of my head, I'm thinking, you have to be it in order for others to see it. You have to be it in order for others to see it. Because if I didn't push forward, then other people behind me wouldn't be able to see role models and they wouldn't be able to follow in my path. So, you know, it, it, I'm not saying that it was easy. Being the only woman in many scenarios was very hard. I can tell you stories. I have scars to, to show for it as well. But I always believe that, you know, if I just kept pushing through others, you know, if it's almost like the, that film Field of Dreams, you know, if you build it, others will come. And I thought if I build it, others will come and then I won't be the only one. There'll be more of us. And of course, over the years, that indeed has happened. Um, I'm also probably, you know, I like difficult environments. I have to admit, I never like things to be too easy because I don't feel I've achieved anything if it was too e if I got it too easily. And so coming up through my career, you know, the harder it was and the more I overcame, the more I felt proud of myself. Um, and then, of course, when I sort of started having children, I have two boys, 21 and 17. From the moment I looked at my first son's face in the hospital, I knew that there was no way I could stop doing this work, that I had to create a life, uh, an environment that he could come into that was different to the environment I came into. And so whilst I started off doing this work inspired by my parents, not least they were pioneers. They came to the UK. They knew no one here. They had to forge a life for themselves. Um, and so, you know, they are, I'm, you know, they are both of them, my hero and heroine. And then when I had my children, I looked at my children and thought, well, there's like, I've got, I've got to be the shoulders that they climb on in the way that I climbed on my parents' shoulders in order to succeed. And so every day, my children keep me kind of grounded and honest um, and continuing to do this work. And that is brilliant. It's really interesting that you mentioned your parents there as well. And as we know, 2023 is, has been named or is the 75th anniversary of the Windrush. The Windrush being one of the first ships that brought significant numbers of people from the Caribbean to the UK. Has this anniversary caused you to reflect on your own career journey? And you, you mentioned the inspiration from your parents, but this year, have you reflected a bit more on the journey that many people have made to the UK? Oh, wow. I think about this all the time. Sadly, as I said, my parents aren't here anymore. And I can tell you, and I'm sure many people listening will have experienced this too, you know, Sunday lunch in our house was like madness. Everyone spoke over everyone. <laughs> There was always way too much food, but it was always a time for my parents, particularly my father, maybe more so than my mother, to talk about what it, what he referred to as the earlies. The earlies being the time that he first came to the UK and what that experience was like. 
And we heard so many stories. I only wish I'd recorded them all. Thankfully, I can remember many of them, but I wish I'd recorded them for my children. But, um, you know, he would talk about the journey to come to the UK. He came by boat. He pretty much stopped every country between the Caribbean and England to get here. It took weeks and weeks to get here. And, um, you know, and, and he talked about landing here and the experiences that he had as a black man. Um you know, trying to sort of navigate through the UK, knowing nothing, knowing no one, knowing how to kind of make a, a life for himself. And, you know, it was a it was a small community then and everyone helped out each other. And if you didn't have somewhere to stay, someone would let you stay and someone would give you share their food with you, et cetera, et cetera, until he kind of made his way. My mother came, my father came from Grenada. My mother came from Barbados. My mum came on her own as well. She came a slightly different way. She actually came on a plane um, and um, she was already enrolled to be a nurse. And so she had somewhere to live. She lived in the nurses' quarters, um, but she was very lonely. She didn't have any of her family or friends around her. And, um, you know, slowly but surely started to make friends and then they met and then the rest is history. They got married and had kids. But, you know... Um, I I re I do remember as a very very young child, um, sort of having a sense of and also experiencing some of the things they did. Um, we lived um, as a when I was younger. We lived in a, pr a predominantly white neighbourhood, um, and um, my parents were constantly getting harassed by the neighbours who really did not want them to be there. My mum would have to wash excrement from the front door most days. Um, you know, the next door neighbour, there was an apple tree that spread across both our gardens. He was regularly sort of taking shots at me as a baby in a pushchair in the garden with an apple. Um, you know, the neighbours wouldn't talk to my parents. It was very difficult for them. And um, but they, they worked really hard to build community. And for them, community wasn't just amongst black people, but it was about community with the local people because they recognised that their children were British and they had to, you know, they had to um, blend in. Um, and so slowly but surely the neighbours started to come round. But it, it was very hard for them in the early days. And so I kind of, I, I often reflect, in fact, every year I reflect on the journeys of our you know, our um, elders from the Caribbean here to the UK, what it was like for them, um, the hardships that they had to face, the racism. Um, and I think about that because of the work that I do, I guess. Um, when people say to me, well, we have, it hasn't changed very much and we're still far behind. Of course, that's true. We, we aren't where we need to be as a country from a representation perspective across industry. But actually, we have come a long way in so many ways. Um, when I think about some of the things that my parents had to experience, there was no way that they would have got jobs at investment banks back then, even if they had the qualifications to do it. Um, there's no way that they would have had, the, the, you know, moved in the circles that I can now because no one would have let them in. And so, you know, we have because of them and because of their struggle and because they fought for their children that I'm able to do what I do I'm I'm lucky enough fortunate enough to have had a degree I'm fortunate enough to be able to live where I I do where I live but that's really off the back of our elders and I'm, I'm grateful to them every single day
Yes, I I can really um, connect with some of the things that you were saying, especially those discussions around the lunch table and wishing that we would record some of that history. And it's, it is a very important thing to do. It's great that we can do something like that now. We can record our um, thoughts on these podcasts, but it'd be really great to preserve some of those memories and some of those stories. And it, it does also lead me to think or probably has led us all to think in the recent weeks about the Supreme Court decision on affirmative action at the universities of Harvard and North Carolina. And given your great, valuable and wide range experience in DE and I, how do you think this Supreme Court decision may impact DEI initiatives globally? Yeah, you can, I've been talking about this for, you know, since the, the judgment came out, you know, talking to um, other DE&I practitioners across industry globally, but mostly in the UK. And we're all kind of like navel gazing as to what this will mean in the longer term. So it's it's very concerning. Um, what do I think is going to happen? I think, and honestly, I'm purely guessing now. I suspect those organisations that haven't really done a huge amount of work in this space will probably be very nervous about moving forward. In fact, I was talking to somebody at an event um, just last week who said that they were hoping to launch a black network and the plan was to do that. And then when the Supreme Court um, judgment was passed down, they were told to pause. So I suspect that some companies will pause probably those that haven't really invested in DE&I today. For those companies like Bloomberg who have invested a huge amount in DE&I, have got a, you know, have got a big agenda, um, who are holding leaders accountable, who are trying hard to progress and improve representation, I suspect they won't stop. They'll continue to work, you know, such as Bloomberg, will continue to push forward, obviously within the confines of the law, but it's not going to stop us from trying to improve representation um, at our organisation. So, you know, I, I suspect that's what's going to happen. Um, but, you know, time will tell, really. Um, it's, it's very distressing to see what is happening in the US. Extremely distressing. Um, there is, of course, the worry that whatever starts in the US ultimately makes its way to the UK and so there is some nervousness about will the decisions in the US impact the UK and you know maybe maybe not Uh, we'll have to watch this space but I would imagine that for most big organizations they will continue to drive DNI as they always have. Wow these are really really interesting times um, in the DE&I space Um, it's, it's great that we've got people such as yourselves who've got so much um, you know, experience to help navigate firms through this. But yes, it's uh, as you say, um, the next steps of the future is not quite clear. As we, uh, you know, as, as we come to the end, unfortunately, to this podcast, I could talk to you for much longer. I'm sure our listeners could probably listen for longer as well. But do you have any final words of advice for our listeners that may be interested? in a global career, a career such as the one that you've um, managed to successfully create for yourself, just as we work up? Yes. Um, 
I th- look, you know, back in the day when I came into D- DE&I, there was really no one in the country that did it. There was like a handful of people. Um, and obviously over the years, we've seen an increase in the numbers of DE&I practitioners across the globe. And then we had another kind of uh, a surge in, in DE&I practitioners around the time of the murder of George Floyd. And so there are a lot more of us out there. So sort of breaking into this as a career, if you haven't had a history in this, is a bit harder than it was when I was doing it. I think there are some things that make it a little bit easier um, to get into the space of DE&I. If you have a legal background, that's always helpful, right? Because so much of this is based on legislation and increasingly, particularly in some countries. Um, I think if you haven't got a background in um, um, in law, a lot of people make their way up through DNI through the HR route. So if you're within HR, that also kind of positions you a little bit easier to, to progress a career uh, like this. However, if you're in neither of those two areas, then the other thing I would suggest is within your own organisations, uh, you will have um, employee networks or employee resource groups, whatever you call them within your organization. If you are not already an active member, then I would really strongly encourage you to be an active member. In fact, I'd encourage you to not just be an active member, but perhaps lead one of those communities because it will give you an insight um, and leadership um, will build your leadership capability within the role. Um, if you can get involved in some of the employee networks, that's really helpful. Um, many organizations have diversity tasks force in place. Again, showing that you have a huge interest by taking some sort of leadership role, even if it's an unpaid leadership role in the DEI space, positions you really nicely for potential opportunities in the future. But I can tell you that I interview lots of people who want jobs in, in the DEI space who have absolutely no history in DNI. And so for me, showing that this is an interest, it's more than just an interest, it's a passion, it's something that you have engaged with on the side of your desk, um, you know, I think is really important. There's lots of things you can read out there, research. Um, there are courses now on becoming DE&I practitioners, which were not available when I was coming up. Again, enroll, do a course. Um, but it, it's about that energy, the enthusiasm, the the track record of being involved in DE&I that will help position you for roles in the future. Fantastic. Thank you for that advice. So it seems that you have a passion, get involved where you can, study and, and try and take some leadership roles to show, to evidence that passion. Well, thank you so much, Pamela, for chatting to me and thank you for everyone listening. Remember to look out for the next episode of our In Conversation podcast through the usual CFA UK email and social media channels. You can also subscribe so that you don't miss an episode through CFA UK SoundCloud channel or Apple Podcasts. Thank you. Bye.